The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. And welcome to the Tuesday episode of Brutal Nation. I'm your host, Scott Alexander. Right across from me is the one, the only, the shaved down Sasquatch herself. The mighty Tammy, the girl, Underwood. Say, ah, Tam Tam. Hi, everybody. That's not even And how many times do I got to tell you? I am not shaved. I'm waxed. The waxed down Sasquatch then. Either way. Because when the hair grows back, when you're waxed, it doesn't itch. And it's thinner and, you know, like softer. Oh, no. Mine kind of did. That's last time. I don't know why. Itch? Yeah, not like right now because I'm still freshly waxed, but, but I don't know. I started getting like well, every itchy. once in a while. I mean, when you first start doing it, it kind of like because you still have that like hard stubble, but after you've done it for a while, it's just like soft, wispy hair and thinner and. Oh, awesome! Hey, yeah. any reason I have to go see Michelle, I'm happy to do it because <laughs> she is freaking hilarious. She is funnier than shit. I love her. She's she's tremendous. She works at the at Melva House of Hair, by the way, in Bridgeport. Yeah, and ask her where in Michigan, if you ever go see her, first oh of all, God. tell her Scotty and I sent you. And second of all, ask her where she lived in Michigan. It's funnier than shit. I'm going to have to ask her that one day. You have never asked her? She'll go like, I know people can't see me, but you can. She'll go right here. <laughs> <laughs> On the hand. Because, you know, Michigan is shaped like a hand unless you have the uper up in <laughs> That's stupid as shit. Which is Upper Peninsula, but they yeah. call it Uper. Up in the Uper. Up in the Uper. I'm from the Uper. Okay, so um, this is the um, Coral, Brooks, and Henley Part 2. Um, and remember, Coral was considered the candy man because they owned the candy company. And he recruited Henley or Brooks first. And then after a while, he brought Henley was supposed to be a victim. And then he kept him on to, you know, aid. And he was giving him $200 for every teenager they could abduct and bring to him for. Right. And he to- at first he told him that he was selling him to a, a sex slave, a white sex slave ring down in Dallas. I'm so glad that you recapped this shit because I was sitting there in my head trying to figure it out. And I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't fucking remember. Remember who I was. So that's just a brief recap. <laughs> so this part of the presentation presentation was a little confusing for me but i'll try to relay it the best way i can um uh this you know the priest the preceding events from the incident that revealed what was what this trio had been doing for the last three years okay on august 7th 1973 henley who was only 17 years old at the time was talking to a 19 year old timothy cordell curly k-e-r-l-e-y that's a cool name, man. Curly? Curly. Cordell is pretty cool, too. I wonder if it's a family name. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. So during the conversation, he invited the older teenager to go to a, quote, party being held at Coral's house. Um, and Timothy accepted the invitation. Apparently, Timothy was not only one of Coral's acquaintances. Henley also intended for him to be the next victim, obviously. So when Henley and Timothy arrived at the house, Brooks wasn't there. Uh, despite that, they decided to, you know, huff paint and drink some alcohol. Okay. Both Great of combo. Them, huh? Great combo. Yeah. I've never huffed paint before. Uh, no, no, me neither. Side note. Just like, you know, I don't, I don't do cocaine. I just like the way it smells. Have you really huffed paint? 
No. Oh. <laughs> I've never really huffed paint. I was going to say, I've never huffed paint, and I've never, you know, some people love the smell of gas, and I told you my best friend, every time she gets a Sharpie, she'll open it up, sniff it, and then, like, write with it, and then sniff it and put the cap back on. I do like, like the smell of Sharpies. Uh, yeah, or dry erase marker. Yeah, that works, too. Yeah. But anyways, so... um both of them proceeded to intake the to- intoxicants until around midnight. That's when they both left the residence and said they would return in a little while. Um, the two teenagers got into Timothy's car and drove over to the Houston Heights area where Henley lived. When they got out of the car at Henley's house, um, Henley noticed that something was happening across the street. Okay. There seemed to be a commotion coming from the house of Rhonda Louise Williams, his 15-year-old friend. So we went over there to see what was happening. Rhonda, who had sprained her ankle prior to this, was dealing with some things. Apparently her father had gotten extremely drunk that night and decided it was a good time to beat the snot out of her. Fuck. Yeah. So when Henley invited her to join him and Timothy back at Coral's house, she readily agreed and climbed into the backseat of the little Volkswagen. The three teenagers arrived back at Coral's house at around 3 a.m. on August 8, 1973. When they walked. Oh my God, that's the day I was born. I know. That's oh, a... it is exactly the yeah, day you exactly were born on 1973. 8, 1973. There you go. So when they walked into the house, Coral was livid at Henley because the younger man had brought a girl into his house. Coral pulled the boy off to the side and told him that he had just ruined everything. When Henley tried to explain to Coral that he had only brought Rhonda over because of what happened with her father and she didn't want to stay home with him, that seemed to calm Coral down a little bit because he offered the three of the teenagers a beer in a joint. Yeah. So everyone except for Coral sat down to proceed and proceeded to drink alcohol and smoke the offered marijuana. Henley and Timothy were also huffing paint again. Um, Fucking paint hoppers. Well, apparently that was really popular back in the 70s. It's stupid. You got weed sitting right there and you got booze. No, you're going to have But how good was the weed back in the 70s? Was it good? I didn't smoke weed in the 70s. I know you were just weed. born on that day. So <laughs> I, I was smoking weed in the I'd like to get some Hawaiian, but I heard that's really good. I smoked weed in the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, the 2010s. I didn't 2020s. start smoking weed until the 90s. <laughs> smoked a lot of weed, man. Yeah, and then I did meth. Um, let's see. So Coral didn't ingest any of the intoxicants. All he did was sit back and watch the three teenagers intently. This went on for about two hours. And that's when Henley, Timothy and Rhonda passed out. Okay. Now, a short time after he passed out, Henley suddenly woke up when he felt Coral snap a pair of handcuffs on his wrists. Um, he was lying face, he knows he was lying face down on the floor and his mouth had been taped shut and his ankles were tied together. Um, when he looked around, he noticed Timothy and Rhonda laying beside him. They were still passed out and both of them were laying on the floor face down and Coral had tied both of them up with some nylon rope, taped their mouths shut and he had removed all of Timothy's clothes. Damn. Yeah. So when Coral noticed that Henley had woken up, he took the tape off the boy's mouth. As soon as he could speak, he begged Coral not to do what he was planning on doing because he knew 
you know. You think? They've been kind yeah. of involved in doing this. It's not like a, right. I'm curious. Not like a surprise. What are you going to do? Murder us all? How could that ever happen? I am in shock. Yeah. Why like do you that. have me bound? You know. <laughs> Jesus Christ, man. So that's when Coral told him again how perturbed he was that Henley had brought Rhonda over to the house. I mean, how dare he bring a female over, right? Um, as a result of Henley doing that, he, would, he said he was going to kill all three of them. However, he would torture and sexually assault Timothy first. Um, Coral said in his words, man, you blew it bringing that girl. Then his voice rose in anger when he shouted, I'm going to kill you all, but first I'm going to have my fun. Um, after Coral's outburst, he actually kicked, went over and kicked Timothy in the chest several times. Damn, what a dick. Yeah. When he, when, yeah, the kids bound and gagged and all that other shit, right? Um, when he was done with that, he picked Henley up and dragged him into the kitchen. Once there, he grabbed a twenty-two caliber handgun and placed it against the younger man's stomach and threatened to shoot him then and there. Um, Henley, not wanting to die, promised Coral that if the older man removed his restraints, he would help torture and kill Timothy and Rhonda. They continued to argue about it for about 30 minutes before Coral calmed down and agreed to remove Henley's bindings. Um, after that, Coral carried Rhonda and Timothy to his bedroom as he wanted to secure them both to his torture board, one on each side. He placed Timothy on his stomach before tying him to the board. Then he grabbed Rhonda and placed her on her back before he tied her down on the other side. Okay? So... When Coral had both victims securely tied to the board, he grabbed a hunting knife and handed it to Henley. He then told the kid to cut Rhonda's clothes off, and he said that he was going to rape and kill Timothy, and he expected Henley to do the same to Rhonda. Okay? Henley started cutting off Rhonda's clothing while Coral took off his clothes and proceeded to torture and sexually assault Timothy. By this time, Timothy and Rhonda had woken up, and they quickly realized they were in danger and Timothy began to actually fight against his restraints because remember he um, he was not only restrained, he was gay, so he couldn't speak. Right. Right. But he tried to fight against his restraints um, and do his best to shout out his protest through the tape that was covering his mouth. <laughs> um, Henley had already removed the tape from Rhonda's mouth by that point. So when she realized what was going on, she just raised her head off the board, looked at Henley and said in a calm voice, said, is this for real? And Henley informed her that it was indeed real. So she said, are you going to do anything about it? Right? Oh, shit. You okay. know, she was one of his very good friends. She lived across the street from him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Henley thought about it for a second. Then he asked Coral if he could take Rhonda into the other room. Coral just ignored his request. And that's when Henry, Henley picked up the pistol and shouted, you've gone far enough, Dean. Coral climbed off of Timothy and the torture board and Henley continued by saying, I can't go on any longer. I can't have you kill all of my friends. Cause you know, most of the victims were friends of theirs or Coral's. Right. Okay. So, um, that's when Coral started advancing on Henley while he shouted, kill me, Wayne. Like I dare you to God do something. Damn. Right. So when Ken Coral started to go towards Henley, the younger man backed up a few steps. Right. Because, you know, Coral's his friend. He doesn't want to hurt him. He just wants him to stop. 
Okay? All right. So Coral continued his approach and shouted at him, you won't do it, like daring him to. Coral had misjudged Henley because the boy lifted the gun, pointed it at him, and pulled the trigger. Holy shit. The bullet actually hit Coral in the forehead, but it didn't penetrate his skull. Oh, it was just a twenty-two, right? Yeah. Yeah. So Coral didn't even act as if he felt the impact of this bullet because he continued to lunge towards Henley. Now, the kid raised the gun again because this guy was coming after him still and fired two more rounds. Um, these bullets penetrated his left shoulder. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so softer tissue. wouldn't kill him, but, you know, slow him down a little bit. So after receiving those two gunshot wounds, Coral actually turned around and tried to run from the room. On the other side of the threshold, he ran into the hallway wall, you know, because he was stumbling. And at that point, Henley fired the gun three more times at him. With those bullets, he hit Coral in the lower back as well as the back of one of his shoulders. Um, With three additional gunshots, Coral slowly slid down that wall he had run into. He was right outside the bedroom where he and Timothy, where he had Timothy and Rhonda tied to the board. When Coral's naked body hit the floor, he landed so that he was facing the wall, and he was dead before he his body had started its downward descent. I'm actually sad that he died. Mike, because then he's not getting he's not getting proper punishment. Yeah, well, he was murdered for crying out loud, but not the same way he Damn. murdered everybody else. He should have been tortured first. I agree. He should have freaking shot him and incapacitated him, then tied him down. I got to admit, board. I was feeling pretty bad for fucking Rhonda there. I mean, she already had the shit beat out of her by her psycho fucking dad to only almost get fucking murdered by a friend. Yeah, because some deranged guy was ordering her death because he was mad that. It, the girl was brought to his house. <laughs> um, I feel a little bit better about the story now. Yeah. So when Henley later recalled the series of events, you're not going to in a minute, series of events from the day he shot Coral, he only said he only had one thought going through his head. Immediately after he fired the shots that killed the older man, he thought Coral would have been proud of him. Henley just knew that Coral would have been proud of the way he took control during the entire confrontation. He even said later that Coral had been teaching him how to react with speed and force. That's exactly the way he handled the whole situation. A sick fuck. No, when he shot Coral. Yeah, I know. I'm glad he shot him, but... Jesus. Well, yeah, because Coral had been teaching him, you know, make split decisions and but act with force. But still have admiration for this fucking sick fuck. Oh, That's I know, point. right? Fuck, man. Well, but then... Let's talk about this for a second. He had been with him for so long and like inundated to his like ways of life that that okay. was like, you know, he want he he admired the man because, you know, it at like some a point Stockholm syndrome. Yeah, kind of like that. On. That's what I'm thinking. Because remember he moved away for a while and then yeah. came back. Yeah, no, I remember. Okay. No. I'm Yeah. I'm caught up. Yeah. There you go. Um Henley, oh uh, I already said that. With Coral lying naked on the hallway floor, Henley turned around and untied Timothy and Rhonda. After the three of them put their clothes back on, they sat down to talk about what they should do next. Okay? Henley told Timothy and Rhonda they should just leave and he would deal with everything. However, Timothy looked at him and said, no, we should call the police. Okay? Henley agreed with him, so he grabbed the phone book, you know, that place where we used to find numbers <laughs> to look up the phone number of the Pasadena Police Department. Because apparently he didn't know it, you know, the PPD. So by the time Henley called the authorities on August 8th, it was approximately 8.24 a.m. He dialed the number and an operator named Velma Lines answered, 
after a couple rings. As soon as he heard the call being answered, he blurted out, y'all better come here right now. I just killed a man. Wasn't calling, was just blurting it out. Velma was able to get get Henley to give her the address, and she said that she was dispatching a unit to his location. While he sat on the porch with Timothy and Rhonda waiting for the police department to get there, he decided to share a little bit with his friends. He spoke to Timothy when he said he had, quote, had done that for four or five times, and he was referring to shooting someone to kill them. You know, because remember, he helped with some of the murders. Right. So within minutes, a PPD officer, police cruiser pulled up to the house. Upon arrival, the officer noticed the three people sitting on the porch, and he also noticed the twenty-two caliber handgun that was lying in the driveway close to where they were sitting. Okay? So they just left the gun laying there. That's actually a smart move. Well, yeah, because then they're not holding it when the police officer shows up. Yeah, you're not a threat. Exactly. So the responding officer quickly took possession of the gun, and then he placed all three of them in the police car where he told them to wait. Um, He then walked into the house and saw Quirrell's dead body laying on the floor of the hallway, precisely where he had fallen. After seeing the body, the cop went back out to his cruiser so he could read the Miranda rights to Henley. And once he heard his rights, Henley shouted out, I don't care who knows about it. I have to get it off my chest. Okay. All right. So when Timothy was questioned by the detectives later, he told them Henley had said something to him right before the police arrived. According to him, Henry looked at him again and said, if you wasn't my friend, I could have gotten $200 for you. Holy shit. Yeah. Fuck me. Not man. only did he say he'd already killed four or five people, he was like, I could have gotten money for your ass. <laughs> Jesus <Yeah>. Christ. <laughs> so now that Henley was in custody, they took him down to the station. At first, the detectives were only questioning him about Coral's death, okay? He told them about what had transpired um, from the night before. He then informed them that he had only shot and killed Coral because he was defending himself, which was true. Very true, yes. Yeah. So after getting Henley's statement about what happened, they went and talked to Timothy and Rhonda to get their version, and their statements reflected Henley's. So the detective determined that the shooting was indeed an act of self-defense, okay? So... um, after they made that determination, the detective changed the course of questioning. He wanted to know what Henley had meant when he told Timothy that he had already killed several young boys. Okay? Henley didn't even invoke his rights when he proceeded to tell him what he had meant. He was forthright when he explained to the detectives that he and Brooks had spent the past three years bringing teenage boys to Coral. Henley explained... Um, that some of the boys they had taken to Coral were actually their friends. And then he talked about how Coral had taken the boys, raped and tortured them before killing them. During his verbal confession, Henley talked about when he began helping Coral get the victim. He told the detective that in the beginning, he truly thought he was helping abduct boys so that Coral could take him to Dallas and sell them. Um, then he said it was a short time later that... Um, Let's see, hang on. He learned that Coral was the one victimizing and murdering these boys. He and Brooks had procured, and he was completely candid with authorities when he admitted he was Coral's assistant when it came to several of the kidnappings and killings. He even admitted that he was an active, willing participant when it came to torturing and murder, mutilating six or eight of the boys before they were murdered. God. He didn't murder them himself, but he helped torture and mutilate them. Um, then he told the detective that he, Brooks, and Coral had buried most of the victims in the boat shed, and he told them where it was located, and he added that they had also buried some of them at 
out at Lake Sam Rayborn, as well as High Island Beach. Because, you know, they had the three locations. Right. He also told the authorities. Like a franchise. Yeah. Three locations to serve your dead yeah, body. Yeah, they needs. had freaking three cemeteries. Um, he also told the authorities that Coral would pay both he and Brooks $200 for every victim. Um, after Henley was finished telling the detectives everything, they didn't believe a word he said at first. Um, they were still under the assumption that they were only dealing with Coral's homicide. You know? So a homicide, which they had already determined, was self-defense. Um, Henley was persistent, though, in his claims. When he saw their skepticism, he repeated everything that had transpired for the past three years. However, at that time, he told them about three specific victims that he and Brooks had abducted for Coral's pleasure. The first victim he mentioned was the abduction of 13-year-old David William Hillegeist on May 29th of 1971. That's the one that... um, was one of Henley's first childhood friends, and he was last seen the day walking to the local swimming pool with another friend when people witnessed the boys get into a, you know, the Chomo van. Then he talked about um, the abduction of 18-year-old Marty Ray Jones and 17-year-old Charles Carey Coble, who had been abducted on July 25th together. They were last seen walking down 27th Street with Henley before they disappeared. Um, When the detectives heard those names... They knew all of them had been reported missing, and the information was on file at HPD main headquarters. At that point, they took him seriously. They were like, dude, we need to listen to what he's saying. Mm -hmm. So as he kept talking about the sexual assault, torture, and murder of the victims, things were starting to make more sense to the detectives. For instance, they began to understand what they had seen in the room where Henley, Timothy, and Rhonda had been held until then, they didn't know why the floor had been completely covered by a sh- sheet of plastic, thick sheet of plastic. You know, like a Dexter situation. I was thinking the same thing, yeah. actually. Yeah. So the detectives were also beginning to understand that the section of plywood they found was four. When the officer entered the bedroom, he noticed a plywood board that measured approximately eight feet by three feet. So it was like eight feet tall, three feet wide. Um, he... He and other law enforcement officials couldn't figure out why it had nylon rope attached to two corners or the handcuffs attached to nylon rope on the other two corners, you know, to securely tie the victims down. (laughs) After Henley's statement, the other items they had found at Carl's house also made sense. Not only had the police found a large hunting knife during their search, but they also found a plethora of other items, such as several rolls of the clear plastic sheeting that was the same that was covering the bedroom floor, a portable radio that had a pair of dry cell batteries rigged to it that they knew was meant to increase its volume. Then an electric motor that had several loose wires attached, eight separate pairs of handcuffs, a significant number of dildos, vibrators, and sex toys. Dude, that's your closet. I was just saying, you're describing my bedroom. Um, All of this shit. Oh, my <laughs> God. the torture board. Well, <laughs> you haven't seen it in the corner. Okay, oh, never okay. mind. Then they found a bunch of thin glass tubes, and I'll explain those later, and several pre-cut lengths of nylon rope. When the authorities searched his, you know, his Chomo van uh, that had been parked in his driveway, they discovered other questionable things. For instance, the back windows, they noticed right away before they even got in, that the back windows had been covered by thick blue curtains that hindered people from seeing in or out of the windows. Hmm, this is sounding familiar, too. <laughs> you don't have those on your... I have it in my Chimo van that I keep in a storage locker. Shut up. I'm just thinking, um, what's his name? Um, 
Fuck, what was his name? Down in California, one of the... Um, Not Kraft. No. Um, Bonin. Yeah, William Bonin. Thank you. He's yep. the one that had the Chomo van. He did. He did. He did. And, yeah, didn't he? No, it was Norris and Bitterker that called it the murder. The yeah. murder wagon or something like the that. The murder wagon. Yeah. So when they searched the inside of the van, they found more items and contraptions that left them with questions. They found one coil of nylon rope. A section of a beige rug that was covered with stains that they had assumed at the time was just soil. A wooden crate that had several holes drilled into the side, which they now figured were air holes. And the walls in the rear portion of the van were covered in pegboard that had been equipped with a number of hooks and rings. So you know he was probably, you know, securing people to that too. Shit, yeah. That's the way it looks in my Chimo van. You do not have a Chimo van, you dumbass. My storage locker. With says, all your suits and shit? It says free candy on the side. Ice cream? And ice cream. You're so fucking stupid. Wi-Fi. <laughs> Come into my van, little girl. <laughs> You're so stupid. So when the officer searched his backyard, they discovered yet another wooden crate with the holes drilled into it. This one was exactly like the one they'd found in the van. However, when they took the lid off, they noticed the presence of several strands of hair they now believe to be human. Okay. Um, I was thinking maybe there were clumps of hair. Um, so after Henley told the detective everything he knew about what he, Brooks, and Curl had been doing, he agreed to go out to southwest Houston with some officers. He said he would take them to the boat shed where most of the victims had been buried. As soon as the police officers opened the door of the shed, they found a car that had been stolen and stripped down. And the other items they discovered were a bicycle that looked as if it belonged to a child, a big iron drum, uh, several water containers, two sacks filled with lime, and a giant plastic bag similar to a large garbage bag filled with clothes that teenage boys during that time were known to wear. Mm. Yeah, so we kept all the clothes as trophies, apparently. Kind of like my storage locker. You're so fucking stupid. Don't tell people that, Scott. <laughs> now I'm going to get investigated. You are. You need to tell people you're fucking lying. Am I, though? I know you well enough to know you're <laughs> lying. Because I know you would never harm a child. Oh, you haven't been to Walmart with me, have you? Well, I, you would never physically harm a child. You would think about it. But I don't think you would physically do it. I have thought about tripping kids. You know what? When you beat your own open. children, it doesn't count. No. <laughs> He should be beaten now. I've thought about tripping kids in Walmart just to see them sprawled out on the oh, floor. Oh, me too. Especially the ones that are running up and down the fucking aisles and screaming their lungs out. And I'll admit, maybe my foot has slipped out once or twice. You're fucking lying. No, I'm serious. I have. I've tripped little fuckers. Have you really? Oh, yeah. I'd I... be like, oh, I'm sorry. Did I do that? Oh, no, I love it. Did I really do that? I'll wait for the parents to look him up. Ma'am, is this your son? I think he's hurt. No, he fell. I don't know how that happened. You're so dumb. So, when the police department got to the um, boat shed, they actually enlisted the help of two trustees from the local prison. And the two men set about digging into the soft soil that was covered with crushed shells because, you know, it's a boat shed. It didn't take them long to unearth the remains of a blonde teenage male. He was lying on his side, wrapped in plastic, and covered in a layer of lime. Um, After removing the body from the ground, law enforcement officials instructed the two trustees to continue digging 
and a short while later, they uncovered the remains belonging to more victims that had been in different stages of decomp. Because remember, they'd been buried over three years. Right. Like the first set of remains they unearthed, there we, these were wrapped in plastic, and they noticed that some of the victims had gunshot wounds. Those that hadn't been shot, they knew were strangled to death because they still had the ligatures wound around their necks. He didn't even mo- bother to take the rope off. He just fucking buried them that way. That sucks. Rope's reusable, man. No shit. But he, then he had tons of it. Okay, I suppose. Yeah. So, and then you'll find out later that where he was getting it. The authorities found that every single victim they removed from their makeshift grave displayed signs that indicated they had been sodomized. Most of them bore visible evidence of the sexual torture they had endured, such as, this is going to gross you out, their pubic hair had been plucked out in places. Yeah. Didn't look like it was shaved. It looked like it, you know, because apparently there were sores. Um, there were marks on their genitals that indicated someone or something had chewed them. Oh, my God. What the fuck? Yeah. Their rectums had various objects inserted in them. Oh, that's craft. Uh, yeah. That's Randy Craft right Glass there. Glass rods had been put inside their urethra. Okay. Canal. No, I'm done with this. No, wait. We're done. And once inside... Once they had them inside, the rods have been smashed and crushed. Uh, no. So they had broken glass in their dick. You know what? You are, you're, you're a twat. I fucking hate your guts so bad right now. No, you dude, you grossed me out when you gave me Randy Kraft and shoving socks and uh, shit up their ass. God damn it. My fucking, my, like, seriously, no word of a joke. My dick hole is hurting. Um, yeah. Then mouth, their mouths were stuffed with cloth rags and then Adhesive tape had been wrapped around their entire head, securing the rag in place in order to muffle their cries. Mm. I know. Isn't that sick? I'm just thinking about that glass oh, rod thing. God you'll damn. find out something else in a minute. Upon closer inspection of the first victim, officers noticed that his tongue was actually protruding approximately one inch past the margin of his teeth. So it's like he was being strangled and, you know, died yeah. that way. That's the least of his worries. Well, and then they uncovered the third victim, and his mouth was open to the point where all of his teeth, both top and bottom, were visible. And the investigators who saw this developed a theory that he had possibly, quote, died with a scream on his lips. Because it looked like, you know, he was like either fried or scared. Christ, man. Yeah. The two trustees dug up the ground of the boat shed all day. On August 8th, and by 11.55 p.m., they had uncovered, recovered the remains of eight victims that day. That's when the investigators decided to hold off for digging for more victims until the following morning. Um, sometime during that evening on August 8th, Brooks actually went down to the HPD headquarters with his father to give a statement. Unlike Henley, he denied participating in any of the murders. However, he did admit that he knew about two victims Coral had sexually assaulted and murdered back in 1970 before he joined his, you know. First thing in the morning on August 9th, Henley provided law enforcement officials with a full written statement. Um, It provided all the details regarding his as well as Brooks' participation along with Coral when it came to kidnapping and murdering these boys. Henley's confession also said he personally murdered approximately nine of the victims and he helped Coral strangle some others. Okay. He was even forthright when he stated that Brooks hadn't helped kidnap and murder only three of the victims, which he and Coral had killed during the summer of 73. Um, when he was done providing his written statement, he went with law enforcement officials over to Lake Sam Rayburn and they wanted him to accompany them to show them 
where he they had buried the bodies of the four victims they killed earlier that year. In the vicinity of one of the dirt roads, they uncovered two bodies that had been covered in lime and buried in a shallow grave. After that, Henley took them to the log cabin that Coral's family had owned along the lake. When officers did a search of the inside of the cabin, they found another torture board and they discovered more rolls of the plastic sheeting, several gloves, and another sack of lime. Okay. In the meantime, digging at the bow shed had resumed and between 12.05 p.m. when the digging started and 8.30 p.m. when it ceased, the authorities had discovered another nine bodies. So there was 17 bodies buried in this boat shed. Jesus Christ, All man. nine of these victims were already in advanced stages of decomp because um, they were towards the back of the shed. When one set of remains was removed, law enforcement officials saw evidence indicating he had been sexually mutilated at one point. Because the evidence they found was a plastic bag placed next to the body in the ground. Sealed inside this bag, they discovered the victim's severed genitals. And they noticed one of the other victims had a few broken ribs. Um, yeah, so he emasculated them like craft. Yep. After the two trustees dug up the bodies of victim number 13 and victim number 14 that were recovered from the boat shed because, you know, 17 victims there. Investigators did a cursory examination of the remains buried with each victim. They found ID cards that bore the names of the victims. So they realized that they had found the remains of Donald and Jerry Waldrop. Okay. Um, Later that evening, Brooks went in and gave his full confession. He admitted to the detectives that he was present when Coral killed several victims, and he talked about how he had helped bury some of the bodies. However, he maintained his denial regarding participating in the murders. Um, One of the detectives asked him about the torture board. um, In response to the question, Brooks actually said, quote, once they were on the board, they were as good as dead. It was all over but the shouting and the crying. Fuck, man. After giving his statement, Brooks agreed to accompany some police officers when they went to High Island Beach, and they wanted him to help them locate the remains of the victims that were buried there. During the morning of August 10th, Henley returned to Lake Sam Rayburn with some authorities. While they were there, they managed to dig up the other two bodies, so they recovered all four out there. And these two victims had only been buried about 10 feet from each other. Um, when the bodies were removed from the ground, they discovered that each victim had suffered from torture and they had both been beaten severely and appeared as if both, if if most of the blows were delivered to their head. So they were like punched in the head. Um, later that afternoon, both Henley and Brooks went with law enforcement officials out to High Island Beach. As soon as they arrived, they pointed out the location where two victims were dug out of the shallow graves And once digging was done for the day, investigators held off proceeding with more recovery efforts for three days. On August 13th, Henley and Brooks went back to High Island Beach with the authorities. And while they were out there, diggers uncovered the remains of four more victims. With those four, the total number of known victims came to 27. How old were they at the time? Uh, Henley was 17, and I think Brooks was like 16 or 18. Okay. Yeah, they were close to the same age. Just trying to keep it all straight in my head. So I want you to keep this number in mind. The victims came to 27. That officially made it 
quote, the worst killing spree in American history at that time. Um, when law enforcement called an end to all the recovery efforts, Henley told him that two more victims were actually buried in the boat shed. And he also said that he, Brooks, and Coral had buried two more victims out at High Island Beach back in 1972. But the detectives stopped digging. As I stated, after law enforcement officials dug up the remains of 27 victims that made the murders of Coral Brooks and Henley the worst serial killer case in American history, and that determination was actually based on the number of victims, not the you know, circumstances. Prior to that, the worst case was considered to be the murders committed by Juan Corona, which we are going to cover. He operated out of California, and when he was arrested in 1971, authorities discovered that he was responsible for killing 25 victims. What if you want two Coronas, not just one? With a little lime? With a little lime. Just saying, man. I like Corona with lime with a pizza, especially. Um, the murders committed by Coral Brooks and Henley remained the worst case in history until 1978. So for five years, that's when John Wayne Gacy was arrested for killing at least 33 teenage boys and young men. And when Gacy was arrested, check this out. He admitted that his murders were influenced by the media reports during the Houston mass murders, which is Coral's murders. Holy shit. That's where he got the idea to bind his victims before he assaulted and murdered them. Well, at least he learned something from me. He's doing his study and he did his research. All right. Dude. Good going, And then he, like, surpassed them. (laughs) He's like, dude, I'll do one better. I'll do better. The student has become the the teacher. Yeah. The the master. (laughs) Good job. Good job, John Johnson. John Wainson. When the reports about the killings became public... Families of the murder victims came forward with their criticism regarding the way HPD handled things, especially the way the department dealt with the families when they reported their loved ones missing. Law enforcement officials were quick to label these missing children as runaways, and they didn't investigate their disappearance because they didn't consider runaways at the time to be worthy of significant investigation. It's like they chose to leave, let them go. Okay, makes sense, yeah. Well, that was back in the 70s, so... All the families felt that HPD should have noticed the unusual pattern trend regarding all the boys who disappeared from the Houston Heights area. You'll find out what the number was in a minute. The major complaint that some families had was the way HPD had dismissed their concerns about their missing children, especially when they strongly insisted that their sons didn't have any real reason for running away. You know, and Everett... Waldrop, Donald and Jerry's father, had gone to HPD to give them some additional information after his sons vanished in 1971. He wanted to let them know that one of his acquaintances had seen Coral at the boat shed and said that when he saw Coral, he was bearing what looked like bodies. Okay? No. Okay. After Everett told them what his acquaintance had witnessed, one police officer went out to the boat shed to take a look. However, he just walked around the building. He didn't go in before he returned to the station and stated the report was nothing more than a hoax. <laughs> yeah. Great job. So Houston he didn't PD. even bother checking inside. He just walked around the outside. That's a bang up job there. Yeah. You did officer bang up job. Yeah. Everett actually made several trips down to HPD to check on the status of the investigation into the disappearance of his sons. And on one of those visits, the chief of police actually approached him and said, why are you down here? You know your boys are runaways. 
When a similar statement was made to Gregory Winkle's mother, she angrily responded by saying, you don't run away from home with nothing but a bathing suit and 80 cents. Yeah, no, that's true, actually. Because remember, he was on his way to the pool. Right. Yeah, which is true. Why would he run away in swim trunks and only 80 cents to his name? Yeah, that's that'd be stupid. Yeah. He would have taken a fucking bag with some extra clothes. Um, by May of 1974, officials at HPD had been able to identify... 21 of those 27 victims they had uncovered. Um, with the identifications they were able to make up until that point, 17 of the 21 were from the Houston Heights area. So that's an obvious pattern that the police should have noticed. Yeah, no shit. Yeah. Um, or they had a really close connection to that area. Another victim wouldn't be identified until 1983. After that, so that means 22 were identified. One more was identified in 85. Of those victim, two victims, one of them had been living in the Houston Heights area when he disappeared. The other one was from Houston's Oak Forest District. Um, the, after everything they found, the Harris County Grand Jury convened on August 13th. At that time, um, remember that's as they were digging up the last bodies. So at that time, they were presented with what law enforcement had gathered up to that point, and witnesses were called, and the first two that testified were Rhonda and Timothy. Each one had to testify of what had transpired on the 7th and 8th that led up to the moment Coral was shot. Another witness called to testify in front of the grand jury was Billy Rittinger. He was the rape victim that Coral had let go. Remember that? Right. Um. So he had to recount what Coral had put him through during the time he was held by the other man. The grand jury spent approximately six hours listening to the various people testify. Um, after that, on August 14th, they handed out their initial indictments. Um, at that time, Henley was facing three counts of murder and Brooks was only looking at one. The judge set bail for each of them, because remember they're minors, at $100,000. As of... As of 2021, that was equivalent. That is equivalent to six hundred eight thousand six hundred ninety dollars. So that's pretty high bail. A little bit, yeah. Yeah, I mean, although you only have to come up with ten percent, it's still a bit. Um, once the grand jury issued their initial indictments, they actually reconvened to determine if each defendant would face additional charges. Um, during the indictment proceedings, the DA asked the judge to mandate Henley to participate in a psychiatric evaluation, which you would think everybody would agree to, right? You would think, yeah. Yeah, he wanted to make sure the teenager actually had the mental capacity to participate in his own defense. However, Henley's attorney, Charles Melder, <laughs> objected to the request. He stated that if the judge issued that mandate, it would be a violation of his client's constitutional rights. See, that's retarded, man, because obviously the kid's all kinds of fucked up. Well, yeah, and you would want your client to be declared mentally incompetent. Hell yeah. You know. <laughs> Hello, that's, genius. That's the best case scenario he can hope for with that bullshit. Yeah. Um, the grand jury concluded its investigation after reviewing all of the evidence so at that time, Henley was indicted on six counts of murder, and Brooks was indicted on four. Henley never faced any charges relating to the shooting death of Coral, because on September 18th, the prosecution actually deemed that it was an act of self-defense as well, so they chose not to pursue it. Um, Henley's trial was first, 
And it was held separately from Brooks. Um, his trial began on July 1st, 1974 in San Antonio. And he was facing six counts for the murders that occurred from March 1972 through July of 1973. The DA called dozens of people to the stand to testify. Two of the witnesses um, called were Timothy Curley and Billy Riddinger, right? Um, during Billy's testimony, he talked about being bound to the torture board located in Coral's residence. Then he went into detail about how Coral had repeatedly sexually assaulted him before making the decision to release him. More very incriminating testimony was given by police officers who had gotten on the stand and read what was recorded in Henley's written statements. One portion of the confession that was read in court was when Henley talked about luring Marty Jones and Charles Coble to Coral's house on July 25th. During the statement, he talked about what was done to both victims after they had withstood the first round of Coral's sexual assault and torture. Henley has stated that after that initial assault, one wrist and one ankle from each victim was tied to the same side of the torture board. Okay, so they're like, you know. And once Marty and Charles were in this position facing each other, Coral forced them to fight with each other. According to Henley's statement, the older man promised them that whichever one oh, of the two who succeeded in beating the other one to death would be released and allowed to live. So he wanted one of them to kill the other one. Let's get ready to rumble. Right? So Marty and Charles actually proceeded to beat each other for several hours. You know, because they're like, one of us is going to live. Fuck you. So after that, Marty was tied to a different board and Coral forced him to watch as he tortured and raped Charles again. When Coral was done with the assault, Marty had to watch as his friend was shot. Damn. Once Charles was dead, Coral sexually assaulted and tortured Marty again. After he finished that, he wrapped a cord from his Venetian blinds around the kid's neck and strangled him to death. Um, when all was said and done, Coral had held Marty and Charles for two days before killing them. And that was two full days after their families had gone to HPD and filed missing person reports. So they were still alive for two days after the reports were filed. Um, with the testimonies given by police officers and medical examiners, the court was given descriptions of the torture the victims endured. And during those incidents, several of the parents had to get up and leave the gallery. They couldn't continue to listen to what their son had gone through. Which I yeah, no shit, neither could I. I man. couldn't That's either. Fucked up shit. If somebody had tortured my son like that, first of all, I couldn't be in the room with the person who did it because I'd have killed the motherfucker. Well, that would be me. The only, the only thing that would save that person's life is if the bailiff tackled me or, or, or shot me or killed or me. Or freaking, he had a group of fucking officers just surrounding him and getting a, like a wall, a human wall there. To that might him. not even stop me. <laughs> right? You'd plow through him like Red Rover? No, I would. Yeah. I mean, I'm telling you, I am a mama fucking bear. I fucking attacked, not physically attacked one of the teachers, but verbally attacked her when she tried to accuse my son of shit. I mean, my son's an asshole, but I still love him and I would protect him. Oh, yeah. Well, and if I, if, if I know my son is wrong, then yes, I will support him, but he has to own up to it. When he wasn't wrong, I defended his ass. Um, let's see. During the proceedings, the DA submitted 82 exhibits of evidence. Among that, they physically brought in Coral's torture board for the ver- jury to look at. 
So they didn't have just pictures? Hold on. Do you have pictures of that? I do. I think I do, actually, yes. So I can recreate it? Possibly. Yeah. Why would you do that? Why not? Look great here in the living room. Well, that scares me because you talk about being with my mother. You cannot tie her to our torture board. No, I'm going to tie her to the bed, not the torture board. She would not let you tie her to the oh, bed. Oh, she will. I'm going to rubbing her down with that strawberries and cream butt lotion. Mm-hmm. Then after we're done, we wear our matching you jam jams. I think I'm going to leave now. <laughs> you just want to deny Bye, your mom everybody. good loving. It's been nice knowing you. You just want to deny your mom hot loving. My mom is 73 years old, and she would have a heart attack. No, she won't. She'll be fine. Yeah, she doesn't have a weak heart. So. There well, you go. She does go. have high blood pressure this and might, diabetes. This will actually help lower her blood pressure and then help the diabetes, too, because it's physical exercise. Will it help her stress? Maybe it'll help her lose weight so she can get her knee replaced. There Maybe you I should go. let you do it. There you go. It's, it, it's healthy And all she wouldn't have around. to go walking around and hurt her knee. Exactly. Which means, because she can't really bend her knee, so you can't do doggy style, Scott. My That's mom okay. is going to kill me for saying all this shit. I'll get her on the edge of the bed, get those legs up like that, like ski poles. Dude, my mom is going to kill me for talking like this, because you know <laughs> she listens to these when she's in the car with me. I'm just... I'm mom, finally... I'm kidding. I was just... No, she isn't. Feeding Scott some... Jan, you know bullshit. that I love you, honey. You're the woman of my dreams with your purple hair. She doesn't know what to do when you don't call her Tammy's mom. I know. Well, that's. The, I'll call her that in bed. Take it, Tammy's mom. Mm, yeah. I'm done with you. <laughs> Look, even your son is getting disgusted. So then they brought in the wooden box that the police had found in the backyard that had the human hair. Um, according to the medical examiner's testimony, that hair was determined to belong to Charles Coble and Henley. Oh, shit. Yeah. So Henley followed his count, and I could never figure out why, except for it might have been there after he was kidnapped and was supposed to be a victim, but that's a long time to have that hair in that box. It's a hairy situation in that box. I that's a hairy box. say something fucking fucked up. That's right what it is. They have a hairy box. <laughs> they need that's, to go. Well, in the 70s, that was common. They needed to go see Michelle. Yeah, but in the 70s, it wasn't. Known for women to like no, groom no, down there. That's true. Well, even throughout, like, don't you watch seventies porn? Yeah, sometimes, but even like in the eighties and things, that's when yeah they started trimming a little bit. But still, oftentimes, you know, Bikini, like yeah, you would start going out with a chick, and then she'd drop her pants, and all of a sudden, you know, the afro goes poof. And you're like, whoa, this isn't good times or anything. I see a pick in there. Is that a jerry curl? Or no, they wear a tr- bathing suit and it like peeks out the side. And then you look at him and go, oh, there's Sasquatch right there. <laughs> that, that thing's hairier than hell. <laughs> you okay? <laughs> I love that sound. I'm, I'm glad I made the Sasquatch joke. I'm trying to catch my breath, and I'm, I sound like a fucking pterodactyl when I can't catch my breath. That was fucking hilarious. That's why I, like, moved off to the side. No, but you're right, man. Fucking, it's like there's tentacles coming out. You're like, I yeah. don't want to touch that. That's tentacle porn going on. That thing could eat me, Yeah, crotch. no doubt, yo. So, Henry followed his, Henley followed his counsel's advice and chose not to take the stand, which you shouldn't do. Right. Especially if you're, like, that involved. Yeah, you should just look at him and go, mm-mm, motherfuckers, I ain't yeah. saying shit. Uh, you, oh. yeah. Am I shooting dicks? Huh? 
It's a nice shooting ticks. Well, I felt something in my throat. And I thought <laughs> it was just a tick. Shut up. Good date then, huh? Oh, okay. Same. Oh. So, um, <laughs> even though the attorney, Will Gray, chose to cross-examine a number of the prosecution's witnesses, he made the decision not to call any witnesses or experts to testify on behalf of his client. What a retard. That's what I was thinking. It's like, why didn't you have anybody to counter the experts from the prosecution? Right. That is common practice. You get somebody up there and go, look at Henley. He's crazy. He's lost yeah. his mind. And then the fucking prosecution goes, he's not crazy at all. He's perfectly sane. And then you bring your guy back up there. No, you're wrong. I'm a professional. He's crazy. Right. Even a, like an even a freaking expert forensics person or medical examiner that has gone over the you know evidence and said you know well that doesn't really make sense you know i don't believe that's how it happened i wonder if he had a public defender probably it sounds like it that's what it sounded like to me that sounds very public defender yeah so closing arguments were delivered on july 15th and at that time the da carol vance who was a man by the way and it was only spelled with one l not like carol cole He implored the jury to find Henley guilty and recommended a life sentence. Then he apologized to the members of the jury because he didn't have the ability to ask for the death penalty. Because remember, he was only 17. Ah, yes. Yeah. He added to his apology by stating, quote, Henley's case was the most extreme example of man's inhumanity to man I have ever seen. I agree. Um, I bet if he could ask for the death penalty, he would have said if ever a case deserved it, this one would be it, like we've heard in the past. Oh, yes. Which he would have been right. And I agree with all the torture and... Right. Well, if Coral had lived, he would have been freaking right up at the top of Texas's death row. Oh, shit, shit. Yeah, he would have been at the fucking... Yeah, there is no doubt about it. I'm surprised in being in Texas, they didn't come out. Fuck them, they're 16, 17, get your goddamn guns, we're going to shoot them right here. Oh, shit, yo. I mean, Texas is big. I mean, they're a big conservative state. That's why I like Texas. Not because they're conservative, because well, then nobody hangs out on, on death row for 100 fucking years. I was, I, my, one of my favorite sayings when somebody lies, I go, you know where liars go, don't you? Texas. <laughs> I said, when that's full, they go to New Jersey. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> so... Um, when the defense delivered their closing arguments, because they get to speak last, the only thing they really talked to the jury about was how Henley was not guilty and they should rule as such. Kind of anticlimactic after the passionate argument the DA just delivered. That's what just crossed my head. I can see him going, hey, how you guys doing? <laughs> I picture um, Gerald yeah. Gallego saying, trust me, I'm innocent. That's what I said. <laughs> trust me, my client's innocent. He would never do this. Thank you for your time. I'm going to sit down. And then yeah. walking back, looking at him, they go, what the fuck did you want me to say? I'm just I'm a public defender. I don't know what, I don't even know why I'm here, okay? I really don't even know where here is. <laughs> I so, don't even know anything about murder cases because this is my first one. <laughs> I know nothing about, you know, capital cases or anything. I'm not even sure if I'm wearing underwear. Okay, so I'm just going to sit down. Let's just hope for the best. Let's I, hope for the best. Don't judge my feety pajamas, damn it. That's it. Don't judge my feety pajamas, <laughs> of which I am still wearing. <laughs> well, there's an episode of Golden Girls where the attorney walks in in a clown outfit. It was played by, um, what's his name? Oh, fuck. Dick. 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 Van Dyke? Yes, thank you. Okay. Yeah, it was hilarious. Um. The jury then broke and filed into the jury room to deliberate. 
They remained in deliberation for all of 92 minutes before they returned to the courtroom and their verdict with their verdict. And they found guilt Henley guilty on all six charges. Um, Then the next day on July 15th, the sentencing phase of Henley's trial began that that's lasted until August 8th and almost some whole month. That's when judge Preston dial. That's his name. I want to say they did not beat the four and a half. That averages out to 15.33 minutes per guilty verdict. Texas, I was proud of you for a minute. Well, no, remember, um, what's his up. name? Uh, Patois had 90-some seconds per per charge, remember? Ain't nobody beating Patois. That ain't is a nobody special... ever going to beat the 90-some seconds per, because he had 132 charges, and he was found guilty on all of them. And, yeah. <laughs> No, that all one. but maybe four. But, yeah, it was, like, averaged out to 90-some seconds per ver- per charge. See, Texas. You got a lot to live up to, buddies. We've set the bar a little bit uh, higher now. So if you can get that under 90 seconds, Well, that even if they wonderful. can do under four and a half, I'd be impressed. I would. I would. I think Patois is, like, that's reaching and for the stars. Uh, but if you can beat that four and a half... Dude, if anybody could beat that four and a half, I would be so impressed that I would literally fly them out here and, like, shower them with everything. Oh, no shit, because that's <laughs> fucking impressive. Man. Yeah. Uh, in a case like this, though, when you have a confession, you've got all this evidence. Yeah. You know? It, totally. They, it literally should be you walk in and you go, this person, yes, this person, yes, this, da, 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 there's, there's six of them right there. Right. We're done. It should take five fucking minutes tops. You come back. Tops. And, you know, you didn't even make it into the deliberation room. You made it into the hallway and every- huddle, huddle, group huddle. Yeah, Come on. well, they can't talk until they get to the room. So it's like as soon as the doors close, say, "Yep, guilty." Everybody go, "Guilty, guilty, guilty." Oh, yeah, pretty much. And, and that's walk, all it you would walk take. In, you close the door. And let's not even sit down, motherfuckers. What do you all think? Guilty yeah. on everything? Yeah. Okay. High five that shit. Fist bump. <laughs> Come on, Martha. We're all going back. <laughs> yeah. So, anyways, Preston Dial, Judge Preston Dial, sentenced Henley to six consecutive 99-year sentences for a total of 594 years. The defendant actually started his sentence upon being transferred to the Huntsville Unit of Texas Corrections. Um, As you can imagine, he filed an appeal, citing three arguments to have his sentence and conviction overturned. The arguments his appellate attorney cited were, first one was during his trial, the jury was not sequestered which he felt they should have been because it was such a high-profile case and they could have watched the news. Okay, I don't even know if, if Henley's still alive, but... They look, didn't have the internet back then. Look here, you basic bitch. You don't have to... You're not that fucking important and high-profile to where they're going to... They, they need to sequester a fucking jury. Let these fuckers go home and hang out with their families, yeah. dickhead. They didn't even sequester the jury for the Gypsy Jokers trial. I should have kept and that my mouth was shut high profile. If he is still alive, I'd probably write to him. <laughs> Henley? Yeah. Yeah, well, you'll see. Uh, the judge, then they objected to the judge, oh, how the judge overruled the defense attorney's objections about the presence of members of the press inside the courtroom. He didn't think the press should have been there. Can I ask a quick, quick, quick question? It has nothing to do with this. Did you send off that letter to? No, not yet. Okay, yeah, because it's uh, time to waste it. I know. I need to rewrite it and everything because I was going through it and I was like, no, I don't really want to say. So I don't ask now. I've been I've been saying I'm going to ask you that for like the last month. Yeah. And well, I way just... to change the subject. Anyways, the judge then they also objected to the fact that the judge had overruled every attempt the defense attorney made in an effort to present evidence that warranted a change of venue. 
because he felt it shouldn't have been held in San Antonio because that's it was such a high profile case in that county that it should have had a change of venue, which I kind of might have agreed okay, with. But that shouldn't be his first fucking concern. His first concern would be this shitty ass council. That's the yeah, first thing that I would have filed for inadequate counsel, I, but I, he didn't. Look, man, my my my, my attorney was uh, he was worthless. Yeah, you know? well, you'll find out something here in a minute. After reviewing Henley's appeal, the courts actually ruled to uphold it. In December of 1978, he was granted a retrial on all of the charges. Oh, okay, okay? fair enough. So on June 18th, 1979, Henley was in court again for his second trial. This time, the proceedings were held in Corpus Christi. He got his change of venue, and he was being represented by the same attorneys. Jesus fucking Christ. However, <laughs> he also had a different judge, which was Judge Noah Kennedy. <laughs> During the trial, the defense counsel tried once again to ask the judge to rule Henley's written confession as inadmissible. However, Kennedy ruled the statements given by the defendant to the detectives on August 9th, 1973, could be used as the state's exhibit. This trial lasted for nine whole days, and these proceedings appear as if they were a rerun of the original trial. Again, Henley's defense counsel chose not to call any witnesses. Here's a shocker. And... They also spend a lot of their time arguing against the credibility of the statements, you know, of his confession. The defense attorneys did add one little tweak. This time they argued that the evidence the state submitted was more against Dean Coral than it was against Elmer Wayne Henley. Okay. So I think that a lot of the evidence was, yes, Coral did this, but Henley assisted. Henley was actively involved. And if he had a decent group of attorneys yeah i'm just shaking my head how stupid because he could have filed another appeal for inadequate counsel that totally is i would have fucking started yeah there. me too you look at the counsel that you got i don't care how friendly they are to you hey you're not cross-examining anybody you're not really fucking doing oh, anything no, they cross-examine people but they didn't call any witnesses to testify oh, that's on his meant. behalf yeah you're not you're not doing it's it. like you're, they freaking just job. rested after the fucking prosecution which is stupid as fuck and then they gave their closing <laughs> argument which was nothing yeah you know okay uh if you have a passionate your, closing argument, maybe. It's your turn to, for your closing ar- argument like there, Clarence defense. Like Darrow one. And they're oh, who, me? Me? Uh, us? Uh, hold on, hold on. Hey, hey, Bill, what do we did say? Did you keep any notes? What did we want to say? Um, He's innocent. Trust us. Um, Okay, you guys have a great day. What did you want me to say, man? <laughs> I was like mid-donut bite and drinking coffee. <laughs> what the hell? That's right, dude. I was sleeping. That lady over in the corner looks like she has a sasquatch. I'm scared. I'm just going to sit down right here. Shut up. <laughs> I'm the stuck ju- on that now. I know. The jury broke on Ju- June 27th on 1979, <laughs> and this time they actually spent more than two hours in deliberation before they returned with their verdict. In the end, Again, they found him guilty on all six charges, and Kennedy, Judge Kennedy, handed down the same sentence. Um, then, after Henley's trial, Brooks, Brooks's again. trial began on February 27, 1975, which is right after my birthday. Yay! Yeah. Following the grand jury's final indictment, he was actually looking at four charges resulting from the murders. From December 1970 through June of 1973. However, by the time his trial started, he was only being charged for the murder of 15-year-old William Ray Lawrence, which occurred in June of 73. Okay. They had dropped the other three. So the defense attorney, his defense attorney, Jim Skelton, not Skeleton, but Skelton. Did he go around singing 
Nightmare on uh, Before Christmas songs. This is Halloween. This is Halloween. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> no. <laughs> it was Skelton. S-K-E-L-T-O-N, not S-K-E-L-E-T-O-N. Okay, so tell me about the skeleton guy. <laughs> His strategy was based on arguing Brooks didn't personally commit any of the murders, let alone the one he was being charged with. He claimed that Coral was the main perpetrator and Henley participated to a lesser degree. Sounds like he had a bone to pick with him. I can't I even, think, I, honestly, I, I that can't even comment. I think he's got a leg up on the competition with this one here. Oh, my God. People don't understand what I go through. They, like, literally, I mean, they, they just see a small port. They just hear a small portion of it. They don't realize I deal with this every fucking day. And the jury turned bone white. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. Anyways, the assistant DA, uh, Tommy Dunn, adamantly dismissed those arguments right away. At one point during the proceedings, he turned to the jury and told them this defendant was in on the killings, this murder's rampage, from the very beginning. He tells you he was a cheerleader, if nothing else. That's what he was telling you about his presence. You know he was in on it. Okay? Okay. So, which is what the DA is supposed to do. So the initial phase of Brooks' trial was concluded in less than a week. The jury only spent 90 minutes deliberating before announcing they had arrived at a verdict on March 4th, 1975, the jury found Brooks guilty of murder. After the verdict, the judge passed down his sentence. And while he was addressing the court and Brooks during the sentencing hearing, the defendant, Brooks, didn't display any emotion. His wife, on the other hand, burst out into tears when she heard the judge say her husband would spend the rest of his life in prison. Because he's about ready to get boned. By not Jim by Skeleton. By Jim Skelton. <laughs> Again, no words. Dancing skeletons, dancing skeletons. We're done. <laughs> um, after Brooks was sentenced, he too had an appellate attorney submit his appeal to the courts. The attorney did so and argued that he wasn't read his Miranda rights before he gave the detectives his confession. Therefore, the statement should not have been admitted as evidence. After reviewing the appeal in May 1979, the courts advised him that they had dismissed his request. So they didn't grant his appeal like they did Henley. Oh, damn. Yeah. At the present time, Henley is in a house, is housed at the Mark W. Michael unit located in Anderson County, Texas. He has applied for parole multiple times since 1980. And all of them have been denied by the parole board. The earliest he can apply again is October 2025. And he's currently only 65 years old. So you can write him. Oh, cool, cool. That's Henley, right? Yeah. Brooks was housed at the Terrell unit located outside of Rocheron, Texas. That's where he was before he was transferred to a hospital in Galveston. On May 28, 2020, he was 65 years old when he died from complications related to COVID. Oh, shitty. Yeah. So, um, there is a possibility of an unidentified victim. Um, On the grassy knoll? No. This victim was found... um, Oh, where is it? Um, His victim... Actually, this victim's body was discovered. It was well into the advanced stage of decomp. 
for that reason, law enforcement has theorized it's likely he was killed sometime in 1971 or early 72. Um, after it was discovered, they released details about what he was wearing in the hopes somebody would be able to identify <coughs> him. The items they said the victims were wearing include a pair of swim trunks, cowboy boots, a T-shirt, and a leather bla- bracelet. Yeah, that's all. That's an odd combination. I know. Why would you have cowboy boots on with swim trunks? Unless you're like a gay stripper. However, it is Texas. They wear a lot of cowboy boots there. Okay, gay stripper. That's cool. Whatever, dude. Um, These these clothing items have investigators theorizing that he was murdered in the summer. There were additional details pertaining to the T-shirt. The front had a a handwritten inscription. And due to the deterioration of the material, they weren't able to decipher exactly what it said, but they have narrowed it down to three possibilities. It either said LB4MF, LBHMF, or L84MF, which makes no sense to me, but I don't know about the 70s in Texas. Um, I'm assuming it was like a school shirt or something because it had handwritten inscription. So it was something. Maybe it was a girlfriend. Him and his girlfriend. His girlfriend's uh, last name was M.F. Could have been something. Um, the remains of this victim were actually close to the entrance um, and were located between two other victims, the the body of Stephen Sickman and the one of Reuben Haney. This discovery location is what leads the detectives to theorize the time frame his murder occurred because the remains of the victims that were murdered from December 1970 to May 1971 were in the back of the boat shed. Oh, okay. Yeah. So there is a possibility, however, it's not a strong one, that this unidentified victim might have been murdered sometime during the late summer or as late as early fall of 1972. Um, I put 71, but I meant to put 72. Um Let's see here. Dr. Derek, who has headed up the team tasked with identifying the victims, has issued a statement about the unidentified victim's true identity. The missing persons report from 1970 to 1973 of the boys who lived in the Houston area and fit the forensic profile, she has narrated it down to three possibilities. The unknown victim may have been one of the following surnames. Harmon, H-A-R-M-A-N, Harmon, H-A-R-M-O-N, and French. Those are the three remaining missing people. However, Dr. Derek also knows that she honestly believes that the name of this victim is Robert or Bobby French. And she has this belief because she was actually sent a package from an anonymous sender. And inside the package, there were photographs that could possibly be of the victim, which would have been taken right before he was abducted and murdered. And there's also something from the sender in the package that indicated the name of the person in the pictures was Bobby French. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, from the time, and this is going to piss you off. Um, okay. From the time Coral is said to have begun his murder spree through the day he died in 73, there were a total of 42 boys from the Houston area who had disappeared. When it came to the authorities' search for victims, they actually just chose to cease their efforts as soon as 
Juan Corona's record number of victims was surpassed. So as soon as they got past the 25, they were like, no, we're done. Bang up job once again. Yeah. Good job, coppers. Well, because they actually uncovered the remains of number 26 and number 27, and they were bound together out at High Island Beach, dump site on August 13th. They determined there was no need to search for more victims. Because, I mean, they would have hit 26 with that dig, and then because two were, they had 27. So they had surpassed his record, so they said, nope, we're done. So this decision was made despite the fact Henley was persistent in his claim that there were two more victims buried there. He indicated that these two victims had been placed there sometime in 1972. There may be evidence that helps to support his claim, because when the authorities discovered the last two victims, the grave also contained two additional bones, and they determined one bone was an arm bone and the other was a pelvis. And that implies there is at least one more victim that was never discovered. Okay? There is a possibility that the two victims Henley claimed were disposed of at High Island Beach might be 17-year-old Mark Stephen Scott and 17-year-old Joseph Allen Lyles. Because after all the recovered victims were identified, it was determined that Mark's remains were never recovered. And Joseph's body, at the because at that time, Joseph's body hadn't been found yet. It wasn't discovered until 83, and it was discovered by accident. Um, if the authorities had actually kept searching for possible victims, the remains of both Mark and Joseph would have possibly been discovered back in 1973. However, since Hurricane Ike made landfall in Texas in 2008, High Island Beach has been covered in water. That means there's only a slim possibility that Mark will ever be located. Um, Now, some former employees from the defunct Coral Candy Company said they witnessed coral digging prior to 1968 at the facility. Um, This was around the time his mom and her third husband were having problems and not to mention the fact that the family company was on the verge of closing, because remember, it like had problems. So when he w- when Coral was questioned about it by the employees, he said he was burying spoiled candy because he didn't want to deal with any insects contaminating the facility. After he was done burying the items, he poured cement over the area. Why would you pour cement over candy? Because we all know that when you bury candy and put cement over, it grows into a big candy tree. Duh. Everybody knows that. So if I bury money and put cement over it, will it grow a money tree? No. Yeah, exactly. It's not just waste money. I need a money tree. I have some friends who got married that um, they actually had a money tree set up, where, which was a thing with like branches, like a plant, right. and people attached money to it. It was cool. Hmm. So to get a money tree, you need to plant a dollar bill in your front yard and give it the golden shower. I'll let you do that. I'm not going to go drop my trowel because that would just be wrong. And like, I don't know why women like fucking squat to pee because you still splash pee everywhere and it's disgusting. So happy I'm a dude. I know. I fucking, that is one reason why I wish I were because I could just whip it out and pee in Trust me, man. I love having a wang. Absolutely love it. Nothing wrong with it. Having a wang? Wang. But you love vagina. I you just vagina. don't want to have one. I don't want to own one, no. I don't want to own a vagina in the least bit. I'm happy. You just want a monument of a vagina. That I do. You want to you want to be like um Laszlo on Yes. <laughs> what we do in the shadows who has all those fucking topiaries in shape well, of women's it, genitals. There's, there, there's a reason behind it because 
Vaginas are super tough. They're super durable. They are. They can be stretched out to China and bounce back. Fuck yeah, if, man. If somebody takes care of them. Let's not mention any names. Women are way stronger than guys are, man. Oh, dude. I mean, I'm if happy. a guy went through a contraction, he would fucking die. The closest thing a guy could come to labor pains is a kidney stone, and not every one of them suffers from it. I stub my toe and think I'm going to die. I can't imagine. I know, dude. I saw you stub your toe on the fucking fan one day and you about had a heart attack. Yeah, I can't imagine fucking going through contractions, man. Yeah. No. And I I don't want vagina. I don't. I don't want to build giant vagina statues just because I'm a perv. Because I admire vaginas, man. You do. Yeah, I know. I'm surprised you haven't gone and laid. You know, paid homage to the one in my town. (laughs) I've been there. I masturbated. (laughs) You're disgusting. Rub my face all over. You're fucking gross. I know because whenever, you know, when you're at the hospital or a doctor's office and you're in pain, they always say, let me know your pain level on a level of one to 10. And I always tell them, um, I've been through labor. So about a nine, because nothing has been worse than my labor pains. (laughs) Um, let's see. They also remember a time when, um, That he was digging around in an area that they called the waste ground. And later he turned that area into a parking lot. So he covered it with cement as well. Smart guy, man. Yeah. So the employees also remembered that he used to keep several rolls of clear plastic sheeting that happened to be the same type that he later used when he committed the murders. Dun, dun, dun. So that implies that he had been killing back in before 1968. Oh, shit, yeah. Then there were the statements from Coral's colleagues at HLMP where he was working when he was murdered that claimed that shortly after he was hired, he began to collect sections of nylon rope they used to the facility. Um, and these pieces that he kept for himself were usually just thrown away. Um, the rope he used when he bound his victims and when he strangled them to death happened to be the same brand. Yeah, so this information leads to another theory that Coral started murdering boys way before his spree in 1970. And he has brand loyalty. Yeah, and at the very (laughs) least, he had started sexually assaulting teenagers prior to the later acts he committed before killing his victims. So he was, like, honing his craft. Um, Yeah, it was just, I mean, I have some more information that I haven't rewritten yet, Um, but there is some information I want to read here that during a routine investigation in March of 75, the HPD discovered some pornographic pictures and films showing boys as young as eight, most of whom were from the Houston Heights area. What the fuck? Yeah. Of the 16 individuals on the films and photos, 11 of them appeared to be among Coral's known victims who had been identified. Okay. The discovery raised the disturbing possibility that the statements that Coral had given Henley and Brooks about the sex ring. um, Hang on. That bought and sold boys may have actually been true. Oh, this discovery of the material in Houston led to an arrest of five people in Santa Clara, California, and however, no d- direct link in these arrests were to Coral has been proven. Um, uh, two days after the investigators uncovered the final bodies that were linked to the mass murders, uh, investigators in Dallas actually discovered a nationwide homosexual procurement ring 
And this raid, this raid, uh, they found they actually confiscated a card filing system that contained ten thousand names of individuals across America who were part of this network and the personal details of the teenage boys that they exploited. So this was more of a sex ring. You said procurement. I'm. I, I... Yeah. The. Yeah. Because. Um, where did I say? Oh, yeah. The homosexual procurement ring means that they were actually procuring these victims gotcha. that they okay. freaking passed around for human trafficking. Okay. Because to me, at first, it sounded like they were like abducting gay people and passing them around. Well, that, no, that makes no they fucking were, sense. The, they were passing around the boys to other homosexual men to take gotcha. advantage of. Um, However, there's no direct evidence to suggest that Coral solicited any of his victims in that manner. And because the HPD chose not to pursue that possibility, but also because Brooks or Henley never mentioned having met any individuals from this organization. Oh, okay. But still, there could have been some truth that actually Coral was involved in that. Right, just because they didn't meet him. Well, and that could indicate that that, those victims from there were actually some of his victims from back before 1970. Correct. So my question is, is do you think that he killed prior before to 1970? Fuck yes. Yeah. I think well, he's been I doing he, this and molesting for a long time. Yeah, man. my whole thing is, is I believe, because remember he got one of his employees <laughs> filed a complaint with his mom saying that he had approached him, homosexual, you know, made right. sexual advances yeah, towards yeah. him. So that tells me that he was probably sexually assaulting boys at that time. I, I, I think he was. Yeah, and then I do believe that these two incidences where he was digging and laid cement reminded me of freaking Ward Weaver the third when he fucking killed yep. one of his victims and then poured cement over the back, you know, back patio. Correct. So, yeah, I believe he really was killing prior to that. No, yeah, 100%. And I believe there are way more victims and the police were negligent by not looking for more. I agree. You know? Because, you know, even though he beat that um, Corona's record... Give that fam- give those families some closure. Exactly. Um, okay, so he beat Corona's record. Does that mean okay we don't we can stop because he surpassed it and there's nothing more to look for? Yeah. No, that's ridiculous. I mean, they. I mean, because the two accomplices were adamant that there were more victims. Right. Yet the law enforcement ignored them. Bastards. I know. So yeah. So that's all I have on them. But like I said, it was. It just really freaking grossed me out and pissed me off. Because law enforcement pissed me off when they dismissed the uh, missing persons reports. Right. And then when the cop went out to the boat shed because, he, you know, a complaint was filed, he just walked around the outside. It's like, okay, so you walk around the outside. Why can't you go inside? (laughs) Yeah. Fucking dumbasses. Totally dropped the ball on that one. They did. Law enforcement totally dropped the ball. And I saw a documentary where they were talking to one of the lead detectives from Texas. And, of course, he had on the brown outfit and the cowboy hat and all that (laughs) shit. He looked really Texan. Because he's from Texas. And he was like, I ain't never seen anything like this before. And it's like, of course you haven't. It's 1970. (laughs) You know? That was before they really even came up with serial killing. Yeah. So, fucking dickheads. But there you go. All right. Remember, you can send us an email that says how great I am, of course, because I have awesome jokes. 
at Brutal Nation at TwistedBlueLLC.com. Check out the website at www.TwistedBlueLLC.com. Check out our Patreon page. Ignore the higher end shit, man. Every everything yeah, helps. Yeah, I mean, we just have that on there, just you know, just because, and we don't expect anybody to. Right. Um, you know. What else did I have to say? Oh, check us out on Medium, Crime Beat. That's on Medium, and wherever you get your blogs. And if you want to start your own podcast, send your idea to admin at twistedbluellc.com. This show is copyrighted twenty twenty two by Twisted Blue LLC. All rights reserved. And we will catch you guys later. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.